Continuing our series on uh, the Gospel of John this morning that we started uh, actually last year and then picked up again uh, in August. But I did want to take, uh, before we get started, uh, just a minute to briefly explain uh, what we are not preaching on uh, this morning. Hopefully you'll, you can stick with me uh, through this. But if you notice, last week we ended on chapter 7, uh, verse 52, and this week we're picking up in chapter 8, but in verse 12. So I just wanted to take just a second to explain to you why. Um, many of you know that the English New Testament that you have is a translation from Greek manuscripts, okay? Uh, most of the manuscripts that we have are, are extremely old. Some of them go back even to the second century, but we don't have uh, the originals. That is, we don't have the piece of paper uh, that John wrote on. Okay, those are gone. Uh, what we have are copies of those original manuscripts, uh, thousands of them, uh, in fact, that have been preserved uh, through the centuries. Uh, and, but these 12 verses, uh, what's often called the, the story of the woman caught in adultery, uh, these 12 verses, if you look in your Bible, they're probably uh, bracketed off in some way. They might be in italics or have some kind of footnote. Uh, and the reason is that this story uh, does not appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts uh, that we have. So the story does show up uh, in some, some of the later copies, uh, but even there it shows up in different places in the Gospel of John, and in one case it even shows up uh, in a different book. It shows up in the Gospel of Luke. So while this story has a long, a long pedigree uh, in church history, and it may even be, I'm, I'm actually inclined to believe, uh, a true story. Um, most Christian scholars uh, don't believe that it's original uh, to John's gospel. That is to say, um, it may even be a real historical event and recorded accurately and still not be part of God's inspired word. Okay? So that, that could raise some questions for you um, about the reliability or, or the trustworthiness of, of the Bible that you have. But I just want you to know that the Bible that you hold in your hands is completely trustworthy. Uh, the small fraction of questions that concern um, the original manuscripts are really insignificant uh, to the message of the New Testament. And even this section, uh, this story in John, and, and one other uh, perhaps the ending of Mark, are really the only two sections like this in the New Testament that have these kinds of questions. Uh, and although the, the story of the woman caught in adultery uh, says uh, things that are completely consistent with the character of Jesus, there's really not any key information there that would be missing uh, if it's not in your Bible. So, if you have any questions about that, I'd be glad to get together with you later and we, could, and we could talk about that. But what I want you to know this morning is that we believe that the Word of God is the only uh, source of infallible authority that we have. It's the only rule to direct us, how we may glorify and enjoy God. And it's because of our high regard for Scripture and the importance that we place on its authority and its inerrancy uh, that we're not preaching that section. Okay, so we got that out of the way. Uh, now, if you will turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8, I'll begin reading 
Uh, in verse 12, uh, it's also printed for you there uh, in your bulletin. Uh, please follow along with me. Uh, and let's give our attention to the reading of God's uh, holy and inerrant word. This is John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now pray with me. Father, we thank you. For your word, and we thank you for these words. We pray that you would bless uh, both the hearing and the preaching of your word now. uh, That you would use it uh, by your spirit uh, to shine the light of truth uh, in our hearts and to change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the light uh, of the world. Uh, This is the second of Jesus's seven I am statements that he makes in the Gospel of John. Earlier he has said that he is <clears throat> that he is the bread of life and now he stands up and says that he is uh, the light of the world. It's sort of a it's, it's a statement we all want to agree with, I suppose, uh, but it's a little bit hard to get our, our heads around. Uh, exactly what he's saying, or maybe just how big uh, the statement is that he's the light of the world. Uh, but there, there is no better news uh, for those who know that they are in darkness. Um, John 8 is a continuation of the scene from John 7. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And John, uh, he really wants us, he wants the reader uh, to have that Feast of Tabernacles in mind as we understand what he's saying in chapter 8. If you remember the, or maybe you don't remember, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three uh, mandatory feasts, three annual mandatory feasts in the Old Testament established in Exodus and then detailed for us in Leviticus. And the purpose of this feast was to uh, commemorate and to celebrate Israel's time in the wilderness. Uh, In particular, uh, God's provision for them during the 40 years between leaving Egypt and then entering into the promised land. And it was was called the Feast of Tabernacles because they 
would make and sleep in uh, little tents. They would put them on their roofs. It was, it was sort of like camping. Uh, but this was, this was to remind them of a time when they had to sleep in tents uh, because they were in the wilderness. Uh, during that time, God gave them manna six days a week for 40 years. He miraculously uh, fed them from the sky And then in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, proclaims that he's the true bread from heaven, and then even tells them that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Uh, In other words, they are to trust in Jesus as their provision. Uh, They're to feed on him by faith. We also know that God gave them water from the rock while they were in the wilderness. He, He gave them enough water for 2 million people And to remember this, uh, the Jews would celebrate with these different water-pouring rituals uh, that we learned about a couple weeks ago. And it's in the midst of those rituals that Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So again, uh, Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of this Old Testament uh, narrative that was both pictured and remembered in the Feast of the Tabernacles. So that's the background that we have as we come to John 8. But there was another ritual, another ritual that was developed to commemorate their time in the wilderness. Uh, While they traveled, uh, this is what we read about in Numbers 9 uh, just a few minutes ago. While they traveled, God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Wherever it went, uh, they followed So during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would hold what they called a torchlight ceremony. This was in uh, the middle court. I know you all know about the middle court, right? It was in the middle court. This is an an open air area of the temple, big enough for about 6,000 people. And they would hold torches at night and sing songs. Most of you all have probably been to a stadium uh, at night that's, that's lit up with lights or maybe just even in a, in a big city street at night where there's just enough lights that you almost can't even tell uh, that it's nighttime. Well, Jewish tradition tells us that during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the light of the place of the water drawing. The sky was completely lit up by these torches that they were holding. Uh, They've got booths. They've got these little tents on on their roofs. Uh, Children are camping. Uh, There's light everywhere uh, for people that are not accustomed to having a lot of light at night. Uh, They could feel uh, the heat of the torches. And if they were halfway paying attention, uh, they they were being reminded of their own family history. Uh, that their ancestors were led through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. So then Jesus comes along and he says, I am the light of the world. That is, uh, he is the fulfillment not only of the rituals that they were observing, but the fulfillment of their very history. The manna, the water, The pillar of fire, all these things were about Jesus. And although those events were real, 
uh, they pointed to a greater and more ultimate reality. And that reality was and is uh, Jesus himself. Now, at some level, uh, saying that Jesus is the light of the world is the kind of thing that can sort of, sort of slide past you. Um, it might bring back some memory of being in Sunday school and making, making a candle or a light bulb out of a piece of construction paper, and then you say that Jesus is, is great in some kind of way, and you sort of move on. But for the next few minutes, I just want us to really, I want us to meditate a little bit on, on what this means to really consider uh, that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is not um, a light bulb, uh, that he's not a candle. But how is he? How is he the light of the world? And what about that uh, is good news uh, for us this morning? Well, the first thing we see is that Jesus is a light for a world of darkness. Now, we're used to hearing uh, some biblical phrases so much that we can kind of miss the importance of what's being said. But what we see here that uh, this light is a universal light. Uh, in Exodus and Numbers, the pillar of fire led Israel through the wilderness, but it didn't lead anyone else. And Jesus is saying something new here. He is not only uh, the fulfillment of the pillar of fire, but now the light of God for his people would be the light for the world. The Son of God came into the world for the nations to make good on God's promise to Abraham that he and his family would be a blessing to the whole world to offer a universal salvation. And as the light, uh, he shows the Pharisees uh, that the distinction between Jew and Gentile was far less important than the distinction between the light uh, and the darkness. Because everyone uh, needs light, so everyone is offered the light. Uh, Jesus, uh, in this way, is not some uh, sectarian or parochial leader. He has no boundaries. Uh, No one is untouched by his claims. He's the king of kings and the light of the whole world, he says. He's a universal light. We also see just more specifically that he is a light for those in darkness, Uh, just as the hungry uh, need bread and the thirsty need water. The world needs light because the world is in darkness. It's a complete and utter darkness uh, led around by the prince of darkness. It includes uh, the reality of sin, uh, but the point here is really, it's really about blindness, just a complete uh, inability uh, to see. My wife, Nan, uh, she makes fun of me sometimes because she has the eyesight of a barn owl, I like to say. Uh, but when I get up at night, I can't see. Um, so she can see, she can watch me uh, sort of groping around and bending over and waving my arms around, trying not to run into anything uh, as I wait for my eyes to adjust. 
But if you're blind, your eyes don't adjust. Uh, You can't see where you're going. And you don't even know uh, what direction you're facing. And the world is filled with men and women who are in darkness. Uh, That is, they don't know how to live. Uh, They don't know how to die or what's going to happen uh, when they do. Some of the smartest people uh, that you've ever met uh, don't know the answers to these questions. And they, they may not have even uh, considered uh, these questions because the world lives uh, in darkness and it needs, it needs this light. It's a universal light. It's a light for darkness. But it's also a light that gives uh, life. Uh, in John 1, 4, very, very, back at the very beginning of the gospel, he said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, this is, this is more than sunlight. Uh, this is the light that we need to exist, the light that we need to live, a light that both exposes the darkness but also changes it and transforms it and ultimately eliminates that darkness. It does not concern uh, relative degrees of clarity. Uh, This is not a light of additional information or the light of helpful hints. Uh, It is an utter rescue uh, from the darkness. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, they were to be reminded not just of God's preservation, uh, but of God's commitment to his people, that they were utterly without hope apart from him, they were to consider his commitment not only to bring them out of Egypt, but to remain with them and to continue with them and bring them into the promised land at Canaan. In other words, this was not just a charity mission uh, to provide food and shelter for the Israelites. It was their very uh, salvation. And here Jesus is claiming that he is That salvation, like the bread and the water before, uh, this is a light that gives and sustains life itself. Uh, Just recently, I had had the opportunity to attend an AA meeting uh, with a friend of mine, and at this meeting, uh, there there was sort of a main speaker that was there to share Uh, kind of his story. And as he talked, uh, one of the things that he kept saying over and over again was that he kept getting stuck on the fourth step. Uh, There's 12 steps um, in the AA program. And for years, he could not get past the fourth step. It kept kept proving this real hindrance uh, to his recovery. And I looked over at the wall. I don't know the steps. I look over at the wall, and there's a banner uh, that lists the steps, and I see that the fourth step says that you are to make a, or we are to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I thought, well, of course he's stuck. <laughs> uh, moral inventories are an investigation into our own 
personal darkness. And this is just not a place uh, that people can go uh, if there's not some kind of hope on the other side. Now, I don't, I don't know what this man uh, thought about God or what his relationship with God was like, but without the light of Jesus Christ shining into our lives, there is no hope uh, in moral inventories. It's all, it's all groping around in the dark. Do you ever feel uh, like you're still in the dark, uh, that you uh, don't know where you're going or don't know how you're going to get there? Have you begun to see the depths of your own darkness? Uh, it, is, it is only uh, with the light of Jesus that we become free to actually acknowledge our blindness and the darkness of our own hearts. It's only with him that we begin to see ourselves and the world uh, as they really are in desperate need uh, of a light from outside of ourselves. Jesus is a light for a world uh, that is in darkness. We also see that Jesus is the light of all other light. That is that Jesus is not just a light or even a great light, but he says he is the light. All other paths are darkness and all other lights are just cheap imitations. Uh, but the Pharisees here, uh, they're always looking uh, to trap Jesus, uh, never really listening to what he has to say. And here they want to challenge Jesus' testimony. Though they are, they are blind uh, to the spiritual realities that are going on here, uh, they're actually not confused about the immensity and just real audacity of Jesus' claim here. They've, they've grasped something of the boldness of what he has to say. Uh, they are not upset with him for offering some measure of comfort to people, uh, but that he claims to be the light, uh, that he claims to be the only light. So in verse 13, they say, you're bearing witness about yourself. Now, your testimony is not true. In other words, uh, hey, that's a pretty big claim uh, you're making there. Uh, really? Light of the whole world? I mean, that's just not the kind of thing that you say about yourself. Uh, and you can't prove that. Uh, that. And that would never hold up in court anyway. And Jesus uh, seems to sort of acknowledge, well, you may have a point, but you see, I'm different. His answer might seem a little bit strange, uh, but the way he responds is that his testimony is true in verse 14 because I know where I came from and where I'm going. Now, we've already learned in John that Jesus is from the beginning and that he's from above, uh, but the Pharisees don't know these things. And Jesus says in verse 15, it's because they judge according uh, to the flesh. That is, they, they judge according to uh, to human standards, and they completely miss not just uh, the place of Jesus' origin, but his true identity here. And Jesus says, I judge no one. Uh, that is that to say he doesn't judge with the same criteria uh, as the Pharisees. He refuses to apply their fleshly criteria uh, to this situation. What, 
What Jesus is saying to them is, I am not subject to you or to anyone else's standards because I'm different. I am the light of light. I am the source of all light. I am from the beginning. I'm the one who's come down from heaven. And I can appeal to no higher authority than myself. You see, the reason the Pharisees couldn't judge the validity of Jesus' testimony and the reason that you and I can't sort of get behind Jesus and evaluate him is that he is the light of all light. Uh, He is your maker uh, and he is God. There is there's no balcony from which you can look down and get high enough uh, to evaluate God. He stands above and apart from creation. Uh, we cannot ask for his identification. He is the word and the foundation of all existence and all meaning. Now that's all a little uh, philosophical uh, but the real point here is that the light is not, is not only a universal light, uh, but that it is also an exclusive light. That is, there is no, there is no other light uh, for the darkness. There is no other light for salvation. There is no other hope than Jesus Christ. Uh, this, this doesn't always play well. In 2017, uh, we like to have our options. Uh, We like menus and lists of choices. But I think actually, I think there's another reason and maybe a deeper reason. And it's that most of us just can't see past the basic needs uh, of the week and of the day uh, to really consider that we need a light for our own hearts of darkness. Uh, We need a saving uh, from ourselves. What every other religion has to offer is ultimately some form of either therapy or earning your way toward God or toward the good or toward something called happiness. It's only Jesus who says, I will take on your darkness and give you my light. Apart from him, there is no hope in church attendance, in being baptized, in taking communion regularly. There is no hope in having a good quiet time or living a basically uh, decent life. All of these things without the light of Jesus are to actually follow in the steps of the Pharisees and to look for a salvation based on what you can do. These are just ways of not placing our hope uh, in Jesus. But here we're reminded there is uh, no other light than him. He's a light for a world of darkness, but he's also the light of all other light. Lastly, we see that Jesus gives us the light of God's presence. In other words, Jesus gives us what we truly need. After he's made it clear uh, that he's not subject uh, to the Pharisees' tests, 
Uh, he actually says, but I can meet your test anyway. Uh, he notes that uh, the law does say that the testimony of two uh, is valid. And then he calls the father as his other witness in verse 18. Uh, if two human witnesses are enough, here we have God the father and God the son uh, testifying to what Jesus has to say. Earlier in chapter 5, we see that the Pharisees were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because because they knew he was saying that God was his father. And they knew that he was making himself uh, equal with God. So at some level, uh, they actually understood what Jesus was claiming here. Uh, But like the devil, who Jesus will say is their father later in the chapter, uh, they know a lot of truth But they hate God. So even the things that they know uh, are distorted. And then in this this great display of their arrogance and pride and not a little sarcasm, uh, they demand that Jesus produce his witness. Really, Jesus, you're calling God as your witness? Well, where is he then? We would like to meet him. And Jesus says, you don't know him. That is, you don't know God. And furthermore, if they did know Jesus, uh, they would know the Father because that's what Jesus came to do. The light always brings us to the Father. Again, earlier in chapter 1, John says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I don't know why uh, all of you are here this morning, but the presence of God is what you need uh, more than anything. It's what Adam had in the garden and what we all lost uh, in the fall. It's what gets portrayed in the temple in the Old Testament, and it's why they followed the pillar of fire Uh, At night, it wasn't just about guidance and direction. They followed it wherever it went to be near him, uh, to be with God or to die. And the Feast of Tabernacles here is a celebration of much more than just God's provision, but about God's presence with them in the wilderness. And now Jesus... The word who became flesh and John says who tabernacled among us has come to bring us into the presence of God. He has from above, but he has returned to heaven in glory. And now he sits at the right hand of the father, not only to intercede for us, uh, but by faith to draw us up into heaven with him. Now, this is what we live for. This is the goal of humanity, uh, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is to live with him forever. A few years ago, I had the chance to meet a uh, seminary professor who'd written uh, several books that have been really helpful to me, especially in understanding the Old Testament. 
Um, I don't know if any of you would be too thrilled to meet a seminary professor, and uh, this man is not exactly famous, but he's sort of famous to me, okay? Um, I was excited to meet him, uh, and when I went to hear this lecture, I was looking forward uh, to the opportunity to be able to talk with him a little bit. I'm not quite sure what I expected, but uh, it felt important to me somehow uh, to get to meet him uh, face-to-face. Uh, you might have felt this way about some, some celebrity or someone that you've looked up to from a distance. Uh, when I took the opportunity to say hello to him, I don't know if he was busy or had, had a bad day or was just shy. Um, but it seemed pretty clear that he didn't really want to talk to me. Uh, he kind of awkwardly shook my hand and just sort of turned away. Um, now, that didn't really change the value uh, of his books to me. But, it, I mean, it was disappointing. Uh, it was certainly disappointing. It wasn't what I hoped it might be. But the presence of God... Uh, is always, always satisfying. Uh, In fact, the closer that you get, the more overwhelmingly uh, beautiful he becomes to us. Uh, This is what Jesus uh, has come to bring us, and he continues uh, to bring us by faith until we see him Face to face. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Uh, He makes these bold and beautiful claims about himself. Uh, They're bold because no one but God uh, could make these kind of claims. And they are beautiful because they are true. Bread and water and light Things that we take for granted, but things that we can't live without. And Jesus says that he is those things. Uh, He is the one thing uh, that you cannot live without. This is a universal and an exclusive light that brings us uh, to the Father. To know Jesus is to be brought into uh, everlasting light where there is no darkness, uh, what Revelation 21 describes as a city with no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Until that day, uh, may God keep us in the light of his Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you that he is uh, the light for us, even for all the times that we forget about our own darkness, for all the times uh, that we turn away from him. We thank you uh, that he is for us. And when he is for us, you tell us 
uh, that nothing uh, can be against us. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, help us to embrace him uh, more and more by faith, to learn uh, to live by faith in this world, uh, to follow him uh, wherever he leads us, to learn that we have no hope uh, without him, and to learn to find him uh, as our highest good. We pray this in his name. Amen.